You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. So we're, we're in this series, James, and for many of us, last week was a pivotal moment, a change in our life, a time to stop and examine our tongues, examine our life, examine our motives, and say, I'm a Christian, and I'm saved by grace, but do I live it out? Is my speech, is my tongue been affected by this grace-saving quality of my life, right? And uh, for many of us, it came down to understanding the idea that words have tremendous power, the givers of both life and death, and what are we choosing to do with our words? So who uh, went out this week, who, who went out this week and chose words that brought life? Two people. Good. So we're going to work on that today. Uh, I believe more of you did, but raising your hand is awkward and weird. Uh, fortunately, I'm awkward and weird, which is why I ask you to do things like that. Uh, we are going to be in James for about one second, and then we're going to divert from it, because where, where the Lord took me is, if you look at James 3, and I don't have it up here, but James 3, 17, which is where we would have been continuing off of last week, says, the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The seed sown in righteousness. And as I read that, I thought, what is righteousness when it comes to our tongue? What is this understanding of righteousness? This is how James closes. Those are his last words of this thought. And then he's going to move into another thought in what we call chapter 4 of the book of James. But what is righteousness? And whose righteousness? Whose righteousness will sow into your life peace, joy, kindness? You see, I don't remember if I, I really drove it home last week, but the two things we do with our tongue is cur- praising and cursing, right? Remember that? It's not just the opposite of cursing is to bless someone. You notice how James talks about that. He doesn't say... Don't curse people, just bless them. That would be reliant on us. That would be reliant on our ability to do something. Oh, I'm not allowed to curse you. I have to bless you. Well, I will curse you in my blessing, right? Um, No, he says the opposite of cursing is to praise the Father. That's what will change your heart. That's what will allow the grace of God to infiltrate your life is to praise the Father. So the opposite of cursing is praise, not blessing. Isn't that fascinating? See, if it's blessing, then it's still there is something in me that I have to do. I have to change and I have to choose to bless you rather than curse you. There's still something reliant on my abilities. But with praise of the Father, it says he will change my heart. He will change my life. He will change my, here it is, righteousness. Praise. Praise. So we're going to look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is going to be the righteousness of God. 
Verses 1 through 6 are the common revelation. What you and I can know without being in church or reading a book or hearing a teacher. Just what can be known by looking around this great world, right? And then 7 through 14 are going to be what's called special revelation. It is going to be the knowledge that we get through the histories of God's people, the Israelites, and through Jesus Christ. And so let's look at this Psalm 19, verse 1. Looks like this. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. And like a strong man runs in its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hidden from its heat. Amen. For those of us who live in Arizona, nothing is hidden from its heat. It's that time, people. The law of the Lord is perfect. Here we go, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even finely refined gold. Sweeter are they than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Listen to this closing sentence. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, would those be the words of every man and woman in this room who calls you Lord? who has received your righteousness, who has humbled themselves before you, would we be able to say, as David said, that your words are sweet and I am enlightened by them, that you are my rock and my redeemer and I find joy in the obedience of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So there's two different places, and I want to talk about them here, because so oftentimes we look at religion, we look at church, much like these two places. One is a prison. The other is a hospital. Now, there's an interesting difference between a prison and a hospital. One is a place people typically go and they want to be for the need that they're there. The other is a place that they don't want to be. Do you know which one that is? For those of you who spent a long time in the hospital, you'd say prison, because you're like, if you spent a long time in a hospital, you know you want to be anywhere but that place. But let's take a look at the facts. At a prison, you've got locked cells, you've got guards, there are guns, there's barbed wire keeping people from getting in, and especially from getting out. 
At a hospital, you have a similar-sized room with the similar amenities in it, but there's no cell, there's no armed guard standing outside your door. And the people are generally there because they need to be there or they want to be there. They've chosen to be there to get help, to get healing, to get better. Now, the interesting thing about a hospital is this, with our friend Mike DeSico, who by God's grace will come home in like three days. Amen. Isn't that amazing? Uh, a man who they said wouldn't live, wouldn't wake up, had a very small chance if he did wake up of having any mental function, who is now fully talking, walking, and is going to walk out of there by God's grace in a couple days. But as I went and visited him, the last place he wants to be, guess where, is that hospital. He is sick to death of that place. He hates it. It drives him nuts. The boredom is insane of having to sit in the bed and stare at those walls and watch daytime TV. That alone is what I believe hell will be one day, folks. It will be daytime TV just on a loop, and you'll be unable to turn away from it. And you'll say, what am I done? Why didn't I serve God when I could have? And it's funny how a place where, we, where they rushed him where we called an ambulance that sped through town to get him there, is now a place that almost feels like a prison in and of itself. The law, the law of God. When we talk about the law of God, it almost is a bad word. It is a curse word. We look at it and instantly we, th we sort of cringe and we think of legalism and we think of all the rules and we think of not wearing a hat in church or shorts in church or what are we allowed to do in church? Or what am I allowed to do outside of church? Oh, no, the law. There it is. There it is telling me everything I'm doing wrong. And David seems to take a different approach to it here. No, David actually looks at it, and the text says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And what is it doing? Anybody? What's it doing? Restoring my soul. The law of the Lord is restoring my soul. So how can something that like a hospital is restoring you, is making you well, is giving you simple wisdom, how is it something that we look at like a prison? How has it begun, how has it began in our culture to be something that as even as Christians, you've probably been guilty of saying this, of just sort of shying away from the law and being like, oh yeah, let's just read the New Testament where Jesus is my homeboy, right? No, no, don't worry about the law. Jesus took care of it. He, and I've heard this said from Christians, got rid of the law. We think the law of God is an oppressive thing. We think the law of God is a harsh thing. And we have good reason to think that. Because Christian men and women have used it as such. Christian men and women from the pulpit, from leadership positions, have used the law of God as an oppressive thing to get others to do what they want. It was never meant to be that. It was always meant to be exactly what Psalm 19 here talks about it being. It was to restore the soul of God's people, of God's creation. The law of God, hear me on this, is an expression of God's character. Isn't that weird? Wait, the law, the whole I'm not allowed to eat bacon thing, that's an expression of God's character? I really liked God before you said that. Dang it. 
The, the, all the rules and the different days and the things I'm allowed to do and not allowed to do and the cleanliness stuff, all of that is a revelation of God's character. Yep. All of that is a revelation of how much he loves you. You see, the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses. That we are dead, that we are incapable of saving ourselves. And along comes the law. Can the law save you? Can the law save you? No, the law cannot save you. Does the law redeem you? Does the law redeem you? No. Does the law justify you? No. So then what does it do? Yes. It points us to the one who does. It gives us practical wisdom. It gives us the understanding of what happens when I do natural things, what natural consequences will follow. That's the point of the law. In case you were confused, if you jump off a 20-story building, the end of that story ends badly for you. Right? I don't care if you don't like the law of gravity. I don't care if the law of gravity never called you back after a nice dinner. It will still hurt you at the end of that 20-foot fall. It's the law. And if you know the law of gravity, guess what? You understand the consequences of jumping off that 20-story building. You understand that the law is not going to impose, that God is not going to impose extra consequences. Like he's going to look down at your mangled body and be like, well, that, you deserve that, but I'm going to impose some time out too. You're going to lose your job, and we're going to do uh, two flus back to back. I know you feel that way sometimes. You're like, uh-oh. I know this is because I didn't read my Bible, or I know this is because, and then the Father is teaching me a lesson. Just slow down, Speedo. Okay, let's look at this here. A college professor won't use a textbook that's more than five years old. Many of you don't have a computer in your home that's more than 10. If you do, I'm sorry. God bless you. And continue <laughs> to be patient. If you have a cell phone more than three years old, you have about 30 minutes of battery life, and you live by a charger. You know what I'm talking about. If you're in here with a flip phone, I'd like to see you afterwards and take a picture with you. God bless you. I know you're in here. I know we've got some in here with a flip phone, and there he is, right back there. <laughs> well, Jesus has the audacity to come along and say that the law of God a document that is thousands of years old is the very thing that we are supposed to build our life on. Yes, you, modern, millennial, 2018 person, that you are still continuing to build your life on. In fact, he says this. Christ says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's Jesus speaking, folks. This isn't a prophet. This isn't an Old Testament uh, character. That's Jesus Christ, the one who came and fulfilled the law, saying it will not disappear, it will not go anywhere, until what disappears first? All of creation. Not a single word from this will disappear until the mountains are gone. Until you're gone, this will still be around. 
So in a world that throws things away, because let's be honest, they're designed and built to be thrown away after a couple of years. That way you have to buy a new one. We're given this law, and here in 2018, we as Christian men and women have to struggle with how do we abide by a law when our culture says it is old, it is rigid, it is legalistic, and it is not meant for our people or our time. How do we abide by that? Worse, how do we abide by this law when the church is saying those same words? Think about that for a moment. The words I just spoke have been said in some churches, not quite so derogatory towards it. No, it's much more nice. It's, there, there's a bow on it, and it's more beats around the bush. But the fact of the matter is we understand the, the law is something. We're sort of moving more towards the grace of God and less the law of God. So I want you to see something here that I want to talk about. I've got three main points, and I want to get us to an understanding of righteousness. Remember, that's where this started. The end of James was that we would receive the righteousness, and there is a sweetness to the righteousness of God. So the law of God is righteous. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 9. Verse 9 the law of God is righteous, says the ordinances of the Lord are sure. The ordinances are his law, his decrees, are sure, and they are altogether righteous. Now, here's the deal. You cannot make a piece of clothing. You cannot build a house without what? A straight edge, right? Understanding where level is. I can remember one of the biggest fights that came between me and my uncle when I was back east. We were building this large $100,000 plus serpentine wall and in the middle of building it, we were trying to get level. And he tosses me a, a, a tape measure and a line and goes, would you make this level? Tell me level. What's that mean? Level to what? What's my baseline? What am I making it level off of? What do you want to know is level? This stone? This section of the wall? This part of ground? So I very arrogantly and sarcastically said it to him like that. I then had his tape measure thrown at my skull. <laughs> Remember, this is the uncle who was bipolar, so God bless him. And God forgive me for who I was. But I didn't understand what he meant. What does it mean? What, what, what do you mean find level? What are we finding level to? If I just tell you to go find level, when, when you are building something, well, what, what are we basing level off of? Where, where are we going with it? This is what a straight edge is. This is what uh, understanding your baseline is. So the law of God being righteous means it is a straight edge by which we measure decisions. It is the level point. It is the start point. It is where I will stick the end, one side of my level, and then I will stick the other side of my level on my decisions and see if I'm where I'm supposed to be. It makes sure my bubble is in between that line. Right? But if I don't know where I'm putting this, if this side is constantly moving, it's going to be hard with my decision over here to know if it's right. Because here's what I'm constantly doing with my decisions. I'm constantly moving them with the wave and the flow of culture because I have no idea what the baseline is. When the Bible says God's law is righteous, it's saying he is, the law is the straight edge by which we measure all the decisions. It is by which we have meaning. Anything outside of God's law cannot be above so wait when we say God is righteous what we're meaning is that God does not have any law above himself or outside of him 
There is no law that governs God. You got that? He is not beholden to anything. He is the very baseline. He is the straight edge. He is the law. God's nature, by which we measure everything else, is what we measure our life. The reason we believe truth is right and lying is wrong, why? Because God is truthful. The reason we believe that justice is right and injustice is wrong is because God is just. The reason we believe love is right and selfishness and hatred is wrong is why? Because God is love. He is the baseline. He is the straight edge. The law of God is righteous means he's that line by which everything else is measured. And so I want you to see something here. In 1989, when all the communist civilizations collapsed in America, we looked at it and simply said, that shows that socialism doesn't work. Right? Socialism doesn't work. Communism doesn't work. It's collapsed. They tried it for a few decades. It has fallen apart. People have to have individual ownership and property and the ability to grow the ability to be motivated. But for those who lived in it, there's a different story if you look at history. For those who lived it, it wasn't so much that socialism felt, but it was that secularism felt. I want you to see this because this is quite possibly one of the most fascinating things, other than what I say after it, that you will hear (laughs) today. This is so interesting. In 1917, we had the beginning of the first civilization's that we have record of that began a civilization on a secular basis. What does that mean? It means up until then, every culture has said, how do we know what is right or wrong? We will get our definition from some sort of moral straight edge. Whether it's Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslim, Orthodox, Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Greek, mythology... There has always been a system for the civilization to have that straight edge, that baseline to understand how to measure. But communism came in and said, we will be a secular culture, void of any God, void of any moral higher power. We will live based off science and the understanding of humans. And that is how it was based. Then came along the 20th century and the mindset of modern thought. And that said that you don't have to believe in God or know what God says. You don't have to have a set of beliefs. You don't have to have a religion. You don't have to know what's right or wrong. The first societies that tried this were... What's funny is we believe that that's somehow a new thought. Like, yeah, look at us. We're running away from modern thought and culture. And and, I mean, we're running away from old thought and tradition and we're going to be modern. Well, guess what? You're about 100 years late. 1917, they tried that. It was called communism. And it failed miserably. It collapsed from the inside out. And let me show you something. This is amazing. Philip Dimitrov, the prime minister of Bulgaria. I know, when's the last time you heard a quote from him? (laughs) In 1992, he was the prime minister of Bulgaria. And he was in Washington. And he gave a speech. I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to these words. He said, what we need is a return to normalcy in our country, meaning not just to consensual politics and rational economics, but to a civil society functioning on the basis of shared moral values. As you listen to this, I want you to see the stunning co- uh, how it stunningly coincides with Psalm 19. He says, he goes on, moral confusion under communism 
was accompanied by an utter confusion of values and their meaning at all levels of societal activity. People thought nothing of cheating and stealing. There was no faith to lean on since religion and belief in God were considered outdated and scientific and unscientific. This state of mind is reminiscent of Dostoevsky. Oh, I knew I would mess it up. I tried and practiced it. Dostoevsky's character Ivan Karamazov. Karamazov. You can come up and scold me later for butchering both of those. Who exclaimed, "If God does not exist, everything is permitted." The whole history of mankind has proven that without God or a higher moral authority, the things most precious to us as humans are often denied us because it is our nature that for true achievement and emotional fulfillment, we need a higher intensity of purpose than everyday concerns can provide. He closes with this. Despite all of that, I look to the future of our people with great optimism. Why? Because there is a new and intense striving among many Bulgarians, especially younger, younger generations, to find the moral foundations of their existence and to rediscover age-old values and ideals. There is a renewed interest in religion, the church, and spirituality in general. And here's the kick. This was much more than a political revolt. This was a revolt of the soul against soullessness. It may be followed by spiritual enlightenment, enlightenment, and a new higher moral imperative. It's a pretty fascinating quote from a Bulgarian prime minister to Washington, D.C., as communism has fallen, and he is seeing the aftermath of his people set free, and the first thing, the very first thing they are hungry for and they are seeking is to refine and regain their soul, to find that baseline, the human heart. This is just... This is unbelievable, right? This is all non-Christian people I am quoting here. This is not the Bible I am quoting here. This is just reality. This is science. You want science? You want proof? This prime minister says, here's the proof. The thing this generation is seeking more than anything is that baseline. They are hungry for truth. They are hungry to understand where is justice, where is love, where is truth. And there's going to be a spiritual enlightenment, was what he was predicting 20 years ago, 28 years ago. Listen, he's not saying, and I'm not saying, that an individual apart from God cannot rise up out of the ashes and do amazing things. Be selfless, be kind, be loving, start a charity, give, do charitable work. It's not saying that. It is, however, saying that for the masses... For the masses, for the large groups of people, for the communities, it is impossible. It is impossible to lead without a spiritual baseline. It is impossible to lead without an understanding of where you are morally. There's a professor at Boston College, and he always starts out the first day of a new class with this question. He says, what do you believe about morality? Obviously, it's Boston College, so 95% of the students say it's subjective and it's individual to each person and there is no absolutes. Make yourself happy, don't hurt others in the process. Right, that sounds good. I want that. Then he says this, okay. Since you believe all morality is just personal and subjective, I would like to, feel, to share with you my personal and subjective view on how I will give out grades this season. <laughs> all females will flunk this class. 
All females will flunk this class immediately. That's not fair. You can't do that. All the guys are quietly like, hooray. (laughs) I'm not going to get enough. He didn't say that. And then he would say, wait a minute, you just told me your personal subjective concept of fairness differs from mine, but you don't like how my concept makes you feel. That's fine. But you didn't say that. What you actually said is that my view of what is fair is wrong. You judged my view of fairness. You said that's not fair. Well, if you're going to judge my view, on what basis do you judge it? You see, you live in hypocrisy if you say there are no absolute values. You live in hypocrisy if you say that there is no baseline in our life by which to judge what is right and wrong. You think you live in some sort of modern thought. You think you have progressed past the words of this age-old scripture, but in reality, all you have done is show and prove the need for the baseline. The law of God is righteous. The law of God, secondly, is wise. The next verse, verse 10, was the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I don't know how many times I've had people come to me and say this. Now, this is going to affect some of you, okay? I promise. We're going to get awkward again right now. Ready? This is what I've had people come to me and say. This is fun. I know what I'm doing goes against traditional Christian morality. Now stick with me. Usually this means I'm sleeping with somebody I'm not married to. But then they follow it up with this. I know what I'm doing goes against traditional Christian morality. But I want to know if you think God is going to punish me for doing it. (laughs) Just take the glasses off. You put your... You then take your face, you insert it into the palm, like so. So what they're saying is, I believe in God, I believe there are more absolutes, but I believe that I really want to sleep with this person too, and I'm doing it, and I want to know if you think God is going to punish me for it, (laughs) which, to which the simple thing I will often say or just kindly ask them is, why are you afraid of running into the wrath of God, but not afraid of going against the wisdom of God? So you're scared of the wrath of God in your life, but you have no fear of running headlong in the opposite direction of his wisdom. This is the 20-story building all over again. This is the Is he going to punish me for doing this thing? No. Your punishment is inherent in your action. Jump off the 20-story building. It's going to end bad. Go against the law of God for temporary pleasure. It's going to go bad. God will just let it play itself out. He doesn't need to punish you. Think about this, though. When the punishment comes, when the inherent consequences come, what do we do? Do we often humble ourselves and say, oh God, here are the inherent consequences of jumping off a 20-story building. Here I lay, all mangled and broken. No. We curse him. How dare you let this happen to me? Or, or, 
we then begin to ask him to undo the inherent consequences that have come upon us. As if somehow being God means I completely disobeyed everything you said. I know, I know, that was my bad. I need you to fix me up now. I'm totally broken. Are you going to listen to me going forward? I will not. No, no, no. (laughs) Absolutely not. I will promise you in this moment I will because I really need fixed up. That was a tall building and I jumped head first. But I will not change. Think about that. Just let, let that sort of sit sit there. The law of God is not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. Whether you're born in Santan Valley or you bangy bangy, it's the same thing. It is the law of God. It is the straight line. It does not matter what you were born with. It does not matter your social standing. It does not matter even your intelligence. It is the law. Just like the law of gravity does not care how much money you have. The rich person and the poor person will hit the ground at the same speed. It's science. (laughs) Unless the rich person has like giant gold bars in his pocket. He may hit first. But I'm not certain. I need to check on that. I was driving to the men's retreat last year, and I need to, wow, I need to close up. Okay, we're not going to get to the final one. I was driving to the men's retreat last year when I decided to check um, Google for it to tell me how long it's going to take to get there, right? And I know, I've driven that. It's just the I-17 to the 40. It's the simplest route possible, right? So I'm already on the I-17, and I click on it, and it takes me this whole other way. And I'm like, Google, what are you, what are you doing? I trust you with my direction in life. Right? Like, there's God, and then there's Google, like, so close. What are you doing? And I look, and I scroll with my finger, and there it says that up ahead there's a really bad accident. And that if I do go the way I want to go, it will take me six hours. Six hours is how bad the backup was, it was like. Or take this nice scenic route, which I'd never taken, and you'll be there in, in two and a half. And I was like, no. Part of me didn't want to believe it. There's no way. I got to see an accident that would cause me to be sidetracked by six hours. There's no way. I bet it'll be fixed up by the time I get up there. But would you believe it? I listened to Google, and I went the opposite way. Had a gorgeous drive, by the way. Absolutely beautiful way to get up to Williams, Arizona. Got up there, and the golf course for the men's retreat where I was going was pretty empty. And I began to call guys. And they said, yeah, we're stuck in this backup on the I-17. They're telling us it's going to take hours to get up there. I'm like, thank you, Google, and God. Thank you, Google, and God, that I looked at that. Every single one of us needs the perspective of someone who has gone before and has a different, higher perspective of life. Every single one of us. You're not above it. You're not beyond it. You're not greater than it. I'll just burst that bubble right now. My seven-year-old could stand to learn a little more from my perspective in her life. Right? You and I, if you can understand the law of God as wise, as wisdom for your life, that going against it is actually going against yourself then you would understand that it is not a prison, but it is more the hospital. It is the cure to soullessness. 
It is the cure to hopelessness. It is the cure to being lost. It will not save you. It will not justify you. Darn it, we're out of time. That's the final one. The law of God is an expression of love. Sweeter than the honeycomb, a joy to my heart, a delight to my soul. When you can understand God's laws and you can say them like David says right there, sweeter than a honeycomb, a joy to my soul, you will have understood the purpose of the straight edge. That the whole time it was to lead you to who Christ was. The law was there to lead you to the love. Because you see, when I love the law, when I can look at the law as David did and say it is sweet, when I can look and understand righteousness as the wisdom to propel me forward, I fully understand who Christ is. I fully understand grace. I fully understand the help that comes from a different perspective. but we are battling the other voice in our life, the cultural voice that says that God's law is old, it is outdated, it's legalistic, it's controlling. And we fight those two voices as to which we should believe on a weekly basis about simple things, not just sex before marriage, but how do we treat our spouse How do we treat our kids? Will we cheat just a little bit at work? Will we lie if it helps ease the tension in a situation? Will we alter the truth? Will we we covet? Will we gossip? How will we use our tongue? God will understand if I use it this way. Oh, he understands. He understands that you're going to enjoy the inherent consequences of speaking that. He won't impose anything else on you. The consequences will be enough. Do you hear me this morning? It's really tough to to look and have God say, I want you to speak about the law. And I'm like, Lord, you don't understand. People in 2018 don't like to hear about your law. We want to hear about, like, the lamb side of Jesus. We, we want to hear that, that you're accepting of us despite all of our, our mistakes and that, that what it means to be loving is the acceptance of everything anybody wants to do. That's what we want to believe. And God says, yeah, I know, but that's not, that's not my, my straight age. That's not my righteousness. That's not my love. That wouldn't be loving. I want to call the band out and we're going to close with communion a little different. We're going to go We're going to go back to serving it. And there's a reason why I want to do that this morning. Let's pray first. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us to see this. Help us to see this truth. That your law is not about rigidity. Your law is not about keeping us confined in a prison. But your law is life. Your law is the freedom. Your law is the understanding of your nature. Your law is wisdom. And lastly, Lord, your righteousness is love. Amen. His righteousness is love that was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ for you and I. It was love that you and I would understand that without Christ... 
this law which nobody, no culture, no person could keep perfect would be made perfect and be completed through Christ. So that you and I would not have to strive for perfection. Rather, we could see that Christ completed the law. He fulfilled the law. And he offers to me his righteousness. And all I have to do is ask. And in that, I get this lifeline called the Holy Spirit. In that, I get this the, the words... And the law spoken to me, not that I have to go to an old manual and read words that are outdated, but that will be spoken right into my head. The Holy Spirit will speak truth to me. The Holy Spirit will speak when I'm about to do something I know goes against the law. He will speak and say, hey, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to do that? And I have that because of what Jesus Christ did. Go ahead, come forward, come forward, ushers. And so, as communion is passed this morning, I want to remind you, please just let the plates pass. I believe there's two cups. One has the bread on the bottom and the juice on the top. Take both of them and then hang on to them. We're going to partake together. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ yet, I ask, I ask you, please, let them pass. Let them pass. Taking communion won't make you right with God. Taking communion won't make you a Christian. In fact, the partaking of communion together is merely a declaration that he is Lord of your life and that his righteousness is your righteousness. And so that's why we partake of it together. So just hang on to it as it goes by. But the reason we did this and the reason I wanted it to be special today is because I really want us to think about how we view the law and the wisdom of God. You may be okay with 88% of the law, but there's 12% of it where you know better. I just encourage you as as you sit here, as you wait, I encourage you to submit that to the Lord. Not to give it over, not to give it up if you're not there yet, but submit it to Him. Say, Lord, I struggle with these parts of your law. And I'm not talking about the bacon or the customary laws. I'm talking about looking at the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about God's laws on justice, truth, and love.
doesn't matter what you walked in here with. It doesn't matter what Jesus saved you from. Because if we understand the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ, we understand that we're all clothed in the same thing, his righteousness. The judging spirit is not of the Lord. A spirit that would choose not to love someone because of their sin or because of their choices not of the Lord. So as we look at the bread, and we remember those words as he said, this is my body broken. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you partake with me together? he then took the cup and he told them how it was to be completed and he said this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin taste and see